The Athletic. Two red flags, another rider injury, other riders very lucky not to be injured. What is going on in the 2023 MotoGP season? It's turning out to be a very, very bruising one. I'm Matt Beer. This is the Race MotoGP podcast. Joining me to untangle everything from the Hereth weekend and Hereth Monday, because we had a test as well, are Val Hurinci and Simon Patterson. Uh, for some scheduling reasons, we're recording a day or two after the race rather than um, race evening like we do most weekends. So Simon isn't in a commentary box or a press room. He's somewhere on the way to Andorra, I think. Yeah, I'm, I'm somewhere in the middle of Spain, parked in a motorway truck stop with the Tech 3 hospitality unit parked on one side of me and the LCR Honda hospitality unit parked on the other side of me. So you are basically in the paddock? I'm going to say I am, yeah. Yeah, yeah, basically. And as usual, me and Val are in our less glamorous houses. So let's get straight into uh, the the mess. That It wasn't all a mess, but for there to be red flags early on in both races and they weren't just red flag crashes. These were proper scary crashes where you kind of held your breath going, who's coming out of this injured and, and who isn't? So, yeah, Simon, what are your kind of opening thoughts on on these two crashes in particular? Well, the worrying thing about them, I guess, is that they don't, they don't feel like sprint imbued crashes. They just sort of felt like a thing that might happen during a MotoGP race start, of which we now have over 40 in a season. Um, in, in both cases, you know, the tie turned to sort of right in the middle of the pack. You could say there were minor mistakes there, but that sort of thing can happen. And the fact that in both cases it led to riders being basically face down in the gravel for extended periods of time. I mean, to put it mildly, not ideal. Not ideal particularly for Miguel Oliveira, who has now sustained a fractured... Humorous, I think right humorous, probably towards the shoulder or something like that, which I think presumably also rules him out of Le Mans now, though there's been no communication of the sort. But it will mean he will probably miss a second round now through fitness unless he somehow makes a super swift recovery here. And it's, yeah, it's generally just very worrying pictures and unpleasant scenes. And yeah, it, especially in my situation, having worked the F1 shift most of the weekend rather than the MotoGP shift, just sort of keeping one eye out as much as possible and looking to review and in the moment going, oh no, and just, you know, being really worried and distracted by by the goings on. I mean, yeah, it, it neither of the two crashes looked very good. Um, both ended potentially with, with riders who, you know, probably should have been looked at harder under MotoGP's absent concussion protocol because uh, I'm pretty sure that that both Marco Bezzecchi on Saturday and Fabio Quattararo on Sunday might have had loss of consciousness. Um, you know, both were face down in the gravel for quite a while and that's not, not a good look. Um, I don't know what the cause was beyond the fact that we're in this point where everything in MotoGP is super tense, where everything is super tight and super competitive, and where you know we're at tracks where increasingly you get a sense that maybe they're just not built for MotoGP, modern MotoGP bikes. Um, you know, we, we, It's becoming noticeable now that more and more the, the solution to problems is to stick in another inflatable air fence um, but it used to be that inflatable air fences were something that we used sparingly in a few places where they were really needed and now it feels like nearly every corner has one because bikes are hitting the fence at nearly every corner um, that's a little bit of an exaggeration but it's not a huge one you know it's it's yeah um, it's a strange path that we're going down um, the you know, a few of the guys, we obviously asked what the cause for it was. And the only one that really presented a coherent argument was Franco Morbidelli, who put the entire blame on Michelin, of all things. Not because the the front tyre is causing people to lose grip in the first laps or takes a while to heat up or anything like that, but because of these problems that we're having that, that in part stem from Michelin, but in reality, stem from aerodynamics and ride height devices overloading the front Michelin that, that hasn't kept up with, with development. 
And consequently, what that means is that everyone, in his words, tries to win the race in the first lap. Because a position made up in the first lap is worth two or three positions later in the race in terms of how difficult it is to pass and move through the field now. So it's made those first laps you know, even more aggressive than uh, than they ever were. Yeah, I'm, I'm ultimately, you know, I'm not sure if the sprint that we saw was a return to form necessarily after the Colomer Cota sprint. But I guess it doesn't really matter at the end of the day because both crashes are yeah i think morbidelli's theory does ring true but also i think the fact that they were both circumstantial does does ring true and it's important to point out that you know simon when you put morbidelli's theory to uh the podium finishers on sunday they weren't necessarily in agreement and jack miller in particular wasn't in agreement you know miller felt that you know yeah there's pressure on the opening laps but also that the yamaha starting far back just need to chill a little bit and he you know he was actually he was quite harsh in his assessment that it's you know ultimately not michelin's fault that the yamahas are qualifying just on the outskirts of top 15 and he you know he also has a point but it's not it's not something you can easily put down to individual riders and individual riders actions it's not like the the marquez crash of portimao or some incidents like that because it was more sort of understandable just things that happen when bikes are this compact going through that corner and yeah maybe everybody is trying too hard to to make up positions early but I mean, without a, a wholesale retooling of the of the current formula i'm not really sure how you how you deal with that unless you know have them start with a rolling start on saturday or something i don't know it's not ideal nobody probably wants that but also nobody wants two red flags in two days. I mean, the, the reason that I maybe don't put full weight in Miller's denials the way that I'd put them in Morbidelli's assessment of it or in some of the other assessments of it is that Miller has traditionally spent most of this season at the front and, and he's not been in that mid-pack battlefield, you know, the jungle, the, the guys increasingly call it now. He's, he's not really been there this year to see how things are. Um... I'd imagine that the, the sensation of starting a MotoGP race in the first two rows at the minute is a lot different from starting it from row five or row six um, and being caught up in those situations. It's interesting, though. It's certainly true that there's a lot of people in desperate positions very early on in this season, either because their bike's less competitive than expected or their, their season's been disrupted early on. So I do I do see that from Miller's side, that there are there are people who are not where they'd expect to be on the grid. Now, that doesn't mean these are the people causing all the, all the crashes necessarily. And, you know, like we said quite a lot, it is increasingly hard to overtake at a track like Hereth. It is really hard to overtake now, although Jack Miller and Brad Binder didn't have that problem in their, in their lead battle in the sprint quite conspicuously. They were doing what I'd class as old-school MotoGP racing. So... I guess it is harder in the middle of the pack where you've got a lot of dirty air in your face and it is more difficult to make progress when you've just got just got one set of aero coming at you. But how how much is this just a, a function of the fact that it is nowhere near as easy to make up ground in the middle of a race as it, as it used to be? It could, could be actually put most of it down to the fact that overtaking is so much harder right now. I mean, yeah, I think it's hard to say. And that's that's sort of part of the problem. It's really hard to, even from what the riders say, because obviously they'll have the best idea of how much risk they're taking early on. But at the same time, you know, race starts when you have 24 very closely matched bikes going into a corner like that. It might happen. It might happen even if everybody is fairly content after that to, you know, sort of hold position. Or even if it was really easy to overtake on lap two and lap three, it doesn't matter that they necessarily spread out after the first two corners. I don't think anybody even gets to really think about aggression at those parts of at those parts of the track. Maybe I'm wrong. So it's 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 a difficult one. Because, you know, Morbidelli says that it's something for MotoGP to have a to start thinking deeply, deeply, deeply about was how he put it. And I agree, but I don't, for me, it's not a clearly just not an obvious situation. Unfortunately, I wish it was. I mean, for, for me, there is an element of, of having to look at this issue with the front tire that comes from the right height devices and, and the lack of overtaking that, that stems from all this, because 
we've had MotoGP grids this close before, but we've had not at this level of problem on them. Um, you know, whenever you look at, at years like 16, it was this competitive, it was this close, um, but we weren't seeing this every weekend. Um, we've had, obviously, races that have been red flagged before, but they've not been, you know, we, we've. I don't think we've ever had a weekend where the first lap has been red flagged like this. Uh, sort of this repeated thing. So I don't think it's the closeness of the racing, and I, I don't necessarily think it's the nature of the tracks, because they haven't changed either. You know, whenever I look at it and look at what factors have changed, um, it's, it's this one we've all been talking about, but not been able to overtake. Well, you, you say there we've not had a weekend like this with repeated red flags. We've only had double header race weekends for a, for a few for a few weeks, so that is a factor in it. Like we've said already, the the fact we now have forty two. No, hang on, forty now because we've lost Kazakhstan. Oh right, right. Yeah. I said forty plus before now. Yeah, yeah it's, it's well restarts as well. Val, we're gonna we're gonna get to forty forty six fifty at this rate. Um, yeah, there were so many more race starts for things things to go wrong on. One thing that was conspicuous at the weekend, people were getting penalised for things, which hasn't always been the case. Often our complaint has been that action hasn't been taken. What did you guys make of how race direction handled things? Actually, I think let Simon start because I think we're, we're going to disagree here. It's better <laughs> it's better for him to do the prosecution's <laughs> case and then me do the, the advocate's <laughs> case. The, the, there's two problems um, with, with the current stewarding of MotoGP. Uh, one which is is for me the bigger, more overarching problem is that under Freddie Spencer's as a tenure as chief steward, what constitutes fair in MotoGP has been changed, but it's not been changed by any written pro- proclamation. It, it's just been changed by Spencer's actions without telling anyone what he's doing, and we've moved from a place where you know. Um, Veteran MotoGP journalist Dennis Noyes tweeted a, a line to me yesterday uh, from Paul Butler, who was the race director and chief steward before the current race director and chief steward, Mike Webb, about how the point MotoGP is not a contact sport, but minor contact in MotoGP is okay. And that was the rule for a long, long time. You know, we would see people bump into each other. We would see, you know, Robin is racing, as they say, and the guys would come in at the end of it, and they'd be happy about it. They they wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't anger anyone because it was accepted as a part of the part of the job and a part of the way that they did it. That's completely gone now, and the reason that it's gone is because Spencer has regulated it out, and he's done that without you know without speaking to the media once, without speaking to the writer once in three years, um, and, and you know I can't imagine, I can't envision another scenario where a sport has had such a substantial change to the rules without really telling anyone. Um, you know, it's like if football suddenly decided tomorrow that they were getting, you know, that the diving would be an immediate red card, but they weren't going to tell anyone. They were just going to start handing out red cards for no reason mid-game. Um, it, it's, to me, just a completely backwards way to go about it. Then the other issue that comes from MotoGP, or comes from, from Spencer, is the fact that it's completely inconsistent still. Um, we saw Jack Miller put a really pretty aggressive move on Jorge Martin during Sunday's race. It went completely unpenalized. A few seconds later, we saw Paco Bagnaia put a really similar move on Jack Miller. And Bagnaia was told to drop back one place. And the only real difference in those two moves that I can see is that after... Bagnaya moved on Miller, Miller waved his hand in the air and looked angry about it. And the stewards seemingly noticed that, paid attention to it, and handed out a penalty. Um, yeah, we the consistency thing is not a new topic to the listeners of our podcast, because that has been the way that it has been for you know, as long as Freddie Spencer has been in charge since 2019. It's always been a bit of a scattergun of penalties rather than a consistent application of the law. But I think this weekend really highlighted how the rules have been allowed to change as well. I have extreme sympathy to both sides of the argument. First being that, you know, it would be good to have more public communication and public guidelines and extensive write-ups of decisions. I think that's super important for, you know, for MotoGP, even if that's, you know, decisions that people won't necessarily like and reasoning that they won't necessarily agree with. 
it's better to have them out in the public than, sh you know, sh shield them from, I don't want to say shield them from accountability so much because it's not like the public can change the decision, but, you know, even shield them from discussion and sort of leave this black box of incident goes in, decision goes out, what happens between shrug, question mark. And I also am extremely sympathetic to, to the fact that I don't really see how the Miller-Jorge Martin thing was not a drop one position type of incident, but the Banyaya-Miller thing was. I mean, they were slightly different incidents, but for me, you either, you know, you either do it for one, for both or for neither. And I think also Jorge Martin agreed with that, even though he was quite unhappy with the, with the Miller dive bomb into, into the final corner. Ultimately, those both can be legal the way they looked. I'm not even sure there was contact in either case, or was it just the rider on the outside sitting up? Um, but it's, I guess it doesn't really matter. Like there's a way that you can look at both of those and say legal, but there's also a way you could look at both of those and say not really ideal and not what you'd constitute as a clean and fair overtake. So those are my two sympathy points and my sympathy ends there. The rest of it, I didn't really have an issue with. There's like a lot of, clearly a lot of people who were watching were really concerned about Freddie Spencer legislating away racing and you know penalizing Franco Morbidelli for his role in the first red flag, penalizing Fabio Quartararo for his role in the second red flag, penalizing Fabio Quartararo again when Fabio Quartararo did the long lap a little bit wrong coming out of it. I in all in all three cases, but especially the first two, like taking away the wrong long lap penalty thing, because that's a separate just sort of question of intent of the rules versus application of the rules, how strict you are. But in the first two things, I mean, initially looking at them and seeing those incidents and then, you know, finding out about the sanctions, sa sanctions, sanctions, I was like, mm, not for me. Rewatching like helicopter cam footage, I, I get both. I get both. Maybe Franco Morbidelli can feel a little hard done by on Saturday because, I mean, he was entering the corner behind Alex Marquez, but Alex Marquez was taken wide by Fabio Quartararo. And at that point, you could argue that it is Alex Marquez's duty to rejoin the racing line safely. And I guess the steward's reasoning was, well, I don't know. I don't know what the steward's reasoning was in that case, but... <laughs> Um, I, th I think their reasoning was either that Morbidelli was still carrying too much corner speed for the situation or just that Morbidelli was behind at the point of contact and the point of contact caused the bikes to fall. Therefore, it's automatically a penalty in 2023. I think that might be how they did it. Uh, in Fabio Quartararo's case, re-watching it from helicopter cam, he didn't do anything egregious, but I mean, he was behind and he caused the contact. He didn't do anything wrong, but I don't like, I guess he was sandwiched a bit, but he was also clearly more optimistic or aggressive on the braking than the, the riders ahead of him. And that caused a multi-bike crash. I mean, I wouldn't go as far as, I guess, Jack Miller went. Jack Miller said that, you know, given that Fabio's crash effectively put Oliveira in the hospital, that Fabio shouldn't have been allowed to take the restart, which I think is, you know, speaking from an emotional sort of standpoint. But I, I get the long lap and I, I'm a little bit, I don't want to say tired, but I'm a little bit, I guess I am a little bit tired of Yamaha's extremely performative anger at every penalty handed out to its riders. And maybe I think Yamaha should have a look as to why its riders keep being penalized for things they do in MotoGP races. <sighs> I, I get your points, Val. Um, I do, but I I don't think that there was an easy solution for both of those penalties for Morbidelli or Quadraro. Because the other thing is, you're mid pack, you're middle of a MotoGP race, you're trying to thread your way through, and the the easy solution to avoid the two contacts that both of them had, obviously, would have been to grab a handful of brake, and then what's coming behind? What what? triggered as you suddenly slamming on the brakes more than your rivals expect you know the, there's always going to be a, a chain reaction response to those things yeah of course. um so while they you know i i genuinely don't believe either of them were trying to be super aggressive at that point i don't believe either of them were trying to cause a crash and i'm not sure that there's any actions that they could have taken or that they believed at that point they could have taken that would have resulted in anything safer um, 
and at the end of the day they were in the wrong place at the wrong time and they got heavily penalised for it um, and I do understand the anger because well partly because it seems like a lot of it seems rightly or wrongly to fall upon Yamaha at the minute um, whereas others seem to get away with things a little bit more um, you know, again we are like this is definitely a case of punishing consequences not actions yeah. and yeah. I am certain that similar things happen all the way through the pack every race 100%. and I don't know whether Yamaha you know what it is that has made them unlucky enough this weekend to trigger a couple of crashes from doing it I am sure that Quattararo and, and Morbidelli aren't the only riders that have found themselves in these situations. Um, and, and this all goes back to the stewarding being a bit of a, you know, a scattergun mixed bag of, are you unlucky enough to be on camera whenever something happens, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. No, I mean, no, I, you're right. You're right. And clearly it, it happens elsewhere in the pack and just doesn't lead to the same circumstances. I mean, remember... I already forgot what race it was because I'm terrible at this, but remember the Brad Binder maneuver into turn one at one of the races versus Alicia Spargaro that we saw and that we reviewed and were really surprised by and surprised by the fact that it didn't yield anything, like anything at all. I'm not sure that was better than what Morbidelli did. In fact, my feeling was that it was worse, but because it didn't cause Spargaro to end up in, in the gravel, it didn't, didn't amount to anything. Now, I would argue that going by what the riders have told us about what the stewards have told them, which isn't, isn't ideal, as you can tell, because it would, it would be ideal if there was a document publicly distributed and available in press conferences. And we should say that the riders often don't get an awful lot more information than we do. They, they leave the stewards room quite frustrated as well. Yeah, but I, I mean like motorsport competitors leaving the stewards frustrated that's that's normal for me but i i understand it's, it's a very common thread i agree but also they i think there is sort of this here the template that if you've had somebody off being behind then basically it's automatic like the long lap is borderline automatic i think and i mean that's inelegant i i don't love it i guess but also i feel physically incapable of being like outraged or even bothered by that maybe i'm in the maybe i'm in the wrong and and it, it ties into a more general point for me that i think i am a firm believer in the fact that any suggestion that what the MotoGP stewards are doing can actually legislate away the MotoGP racing that people love I don't believe that. And I've never believed that. And I don't believe that in the context of what, and this is important, in the context of what Brett Bender said at the end of the at the end of the race, right? And we should we should we should clarify here. So Brad Bender, after the Monday test, told media that, and again, Simon, you brought him on this very well, but he told media that the new racing rules and the fact that having somebody off or pulling off an overtake that's not necessarily the fairest and cleanest is going to yield a penalty. That fact dissuaded him from a last lap lunge in the last corner at, you know, in, in Sunday's race. That dissuaded him from doing to Banyaya what Valentino Rossi did to Sete Gibernau, uh 17 years ago. Or I guess what Mark Marquez did to Jorge Lorenzo, right? Uh, 10 years 2013. ago. 2013. Yeah. Um, and I look, I believe him. I have no reason to, to, to think that he... You know, he isn't saying the truth, but I also think, first of all, the racing on the weekend, aside from the two ra crashes, has been generally good. And I saw no hesitation from the KTMs of launching their sideways RC-16s into the final corner in really good, really fun moves. Also, some of them a bit aggressive, but, you know. And secondly, I mean, it's good that Brand Binder didn't launch it down the down the inside of Banyaya on that last lap because the distance between the two bikes... I don't think justified it. So if the stewarding is dissuading that kind of dive bomb into the final corner, I mean, this isn't NASCAR. You don't bump and run here. You don't, you know, how, you don't put somebody onto the outside of the corner and then claim victory because that that's not fair. Ultimately, Banyaya deserves to reap the benefits of heading into the final corner in last place. And if you can't overtake him cleanly and safely, then for me, Pekko Banyaya should win the race. And yeah, it's not great for the highlight reel, but I just... 
I just like hearing that we were denied a last lap lunge by the stewarding. That does nothing for me. Like, okay. I watched, I remember watching the race. I rewatched that bit a few times. I guess he could have tried something, but it wasn't, it wasn't really on. Right. Like there's agreement there. It wasn't really on. Yeah. You're right. But the problem with that, um, and it's not a problem that's anyone, any writer's fault. Um, and it's, it's maybe a more fundamental problem in MotoGP at the minute is that it feels like the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing because while the stewards led by Erta and the FIM are implementing these rules to, to dissuade people from doing that, the promoters are making a big spectacle out of Hareth's last lap crash uh, contacts and big passes and turning that into what they're using to sell the event. You know, there's highlight reels of all those incidents you mentioned. There's giant photographs of them across the paddock. The The tagline for the weekend was, see you at the last corner. It's no wonder that the writers are confused about what they're supposed to be doing or not supposed to be doing whenever one side of the organization is telling them one thing and the other side's telling them the other. You know, to me, that's just, you know, that's, I guess that's kind of the necessary trade-off that we accept that you know we like last corner nonsense but we ideally not have it but we will use it extensively in marketing when we do uh, i mean i immediately remember it as i always do you know donnington 2012 the world Superbikes finish when uh jonathan ray basically sent one bmw into another bmw in the final corner and went on to win the race I mean, I will remember that forever. I will never stop bringing it up because it is the most ridiculous race finish I have ever seen. <laughs> is that how you ideally like a race to end? No, not not quite, not entirely. No, no, I don't think so. No, if not, if you're a rider, I think if you're if you've got anything to do with marketing of the series or for instance yes. website traffic, then that's, no, that's a massive but, thumbs up for most races ending like that. To be honest, but also in terms of like sporting fairness. Although I should oh, say, yeah, I watched that. It's I rewatched that incident and actually Ray's a lot less to blame than I remember. And he wasn't penalized, by the way, even anything like that. But yeah, different incident. <laughs> I, would, I would do a whole episode on that race because... Whew. Aside from, well, it wasn't even a penalty. It was almost like a, a mild tanning off with a small consequence in that race. Peko Banyai had a had a very smooth weekend. You know, we've spent the last couple of podcasts talking about him falling off and squandering points. This weekend, he was clinical. Uh, he split the KTMs in the sprint, which didn't look like it was going to be possible. Victory in the main race. And he's now on a 22-point championship lead. Now, that's a much smaller championship lead, and it feels like his performances actually merit this season. But... Are we going to look back at Hareth as the moment when Banyai just took control of this year and, and started striding away? Yeah, probably. Yeah, that's that's my expectation. Uh, but you also, you know, you said smooth weekend. I'd say smooth weekend in the diction, diction, dictionary definition of the weekend. So Saturday, Sunday, because Friday wasn't great. And he, he went to Q1. There was something missing. There was a, a bit of front feeling, a bit of comfort, maybe a bit of, I suspect, honestly, a bit of grip on the track made the difference, although he says it was, you know, also overnight work with Ducati and everything like that. But from Friday on, he was basically, you know, completely spotless and perfect. And on a weekend where the Ducati didn't look as insanely formidable as it usually does, Banyaya made the difference and, I mean, you know, was exceptional. It was it was a, absolutely a champion's weekend. It was very, very impressive. I can't really think of a thing he did wrong on Saturday and Sunday. Um, apart from the the thing that cost him one position versus Miller that he just easily reclaimed anyway and still went on to win. Uh, I think he rode fairly controlled. Maybe ideally in, in these sort of circumstances, given his championship position, you'd almost sort of want him to finish like second or third a couple of times just to show that he's, you know, settled down and happy to bank points. But I... There's a feeling that he really wanted to get Coates out of his system in the in the best way possible. And he's done that. And he's, you know, 22 points to the good. Um, I mean, I get the KTMs look good, but I mean, I don't I don't see how that gap does anything but but grow from here. And obviously, I mean, he can just crash in Sunday at Le Mans and that'll change. But such a good weekend. Very good. Yeah. 
Um, for, for me, it was made even better by the fact that it, it was such a tough Friday because it would have been easy to, you know, he came into this weekend, I think, a little bit rattled. Um, his confidence was in the back foot after Coda, after Termas, before that. Um, he came in a bit, just a bit not himself. Um, not the super confident guy that we saw latter half of last year, very beginning of this year. And to to then have a tough weekend, it would have or a tough start to the weekend, it would have been easy to fall further into that confidence hole. And instead he dug himself out of it. Um come out firing on Saturday, looked really, really good. Come out on Sunday just blitzed them. Like speed on Sunday was just yeah, next level. Um, and he, he came into the winner's enclosure afterwards. He made a big deal of, of sort of the number one on the front of the bike and and uh, you know having a having a photo with it and having a big kiss with it and everything. And someone asked him about it at the press conference afterwards. Uh, you know, was he making a statement to his rivals? And he straight up said, no, no, I, I needed that for my ego. Um, that, was, that was getting himself back mentally to championship level basically that was that was reassessing everything that had happened in the previous two rounds and saying you know what I am the guy to beat and I'm going to continue to be that so uh, yeah I think it was a very very good weekend for Bagnaya but it should be a really really terribly worrying weekend for all of his rivals because if this is him finding momentum again then the 22-point lead is going to be substantially bigger by the time we get to a summer break. They're really cool celebration. I think a, a bit of a bit of deserved, relieved cockiness is how I would describe it. And it's yeah, it's it's fair enough because you know, he's the champ. He's not the champ for for no reason. He's not the champ just because the Ducati is the rocket ship. I mean, it's it's tempting for people to say that, I guess. But I mean, we've never said it, and I think nobody nobody who knows knows business says it he's the champ and he rode like a champ this weekend he still's got a mistake in him doesn't mean he's not the champ i mean there's eight jacatis in the grid yeah exactly they're a third of the grid so even if it's only because of the jacati he's still the fastest of those eight bikes and those eight talented riders yeah that's uh okay he's on one of the two factory factory bikes but that's an enormously talented lineup to keep coming out on top of so you did uh, mention just there that the ktm's looking good they looked very good for a lot of this weekend All, almost a one two in the sprint uh, closest threat to banyaya in the main race as well could could we be looking at a sort of well championship charge might be a long shot but are the ktms the bikes that the ducatis have to worry about now i, I keep looking back to the article we wrote at the start of the season after testing being like who the hell knows what's going to happen with ktm this season because that's what <laughs> ktm do they have weird pre-seasons they come into the year and no one really knows what to expect we're in the season, we're well into the season, and it looks like the KTM is a really good bike this year. Um, you know, the, there's, yeah, everything about that looks really strong. Um, they have been fast with, with, actually, with all three riders, because I think Augusto Fernandez is doing an amazing job as a rookie further down the field on the Gas Gas branded bike, but both Miller and... and uh, Bender have been just good and uh, they've been good at multiple different types of track I don't know if there's a title charge in them necessarily because they're a little bit behind they don't have the momentum that, that uh, Bagnaya has they don't have the support around them that Bagnaya has so seeing it turn into a whole title campaign is, is maybe a bit much but they're going to be a real threat. And, and you know, if Binder has shown us anything, it's that he in particular is going to be a massive threat every Saturday afternoon. Yeah, just b before Val comes in, just looking at the po the points, they are not bad reading for, for Brad Binder in particular. 25 points off Banyai, so, you know, one race win worth. And, you know, Banyai only outscored him by two points over the over the Jerez weekend. So one more bit of bad luck or error from Banyai, and, you know, that's, that's, that gap's gone. Yeah, you say, you say points are not bad reading for... For Binder, they never are. I mean, this is a guy who brings home the the results. True. Now, I think there would be like I would believe in a title challenge a little bit if Jack Miller and Brad Binder were one combined rider. <laughs> like, I guess like David Cronenberg's The Fly or something like that. Just put in a whatever the machine was in that movie and made into one hybrid creature. 
Um, because for me, Miller over race distance, I think it's pretty obvious, still doesn't quite have that same edge that Binder does. Yeah. But Binder is a worse qualifier. So there will be weekends where, you know, Jack either fades on Sundays, even though he's been much better at keeping up the longevity, or just pushes it a bit too hard and can't bring home any points. And there will be weekends where Binder is stranded in Q1 and can't get out, and that massively conditions his, his weekend. I mean, it, it very nearly happened here. It was a difference of a tenth between, ultimately, Brad Binder ending up starting 13th or 14th instead of where he was. And if he was 13th or 14th, yeah, he's still probably a top five finisher, but he doesn't, I don't think he fights for, for race victory. Although given the, the term of sprint, you never know, I guess. <laughs> um, it's, you know, they, they deserve to do a victory lap now, KTM. They deserve to rub it in everybody's faces and including obviously my face because I thought the bike did not look very good in testing at all. I was not at all impressed with the timesheets, but whatever... I mean, there's obviously been tons of changes because there's always tons of changes with the KTM. One that keeps coming up is that, you know, the, the bike has shifted to sort of just being permanently longer. And that seems to have helped with Jerez. But just beyond that, clearly, when you when you have this much of a development push and bring so many parts in and you've got clever, smart people and good aero, uh, I mean, good things are going to happen and good things are happening and they deserve to do a victory lap. But they're going to have subpar weekends in terms of pace that I think Peko Banyaya doesn't quite have. And I think it's also really important to point out that, yeah, they look they look really good at Jerez, uh, you know, on the podium all the time. But really a lot of that, and I mean really, really a lot of that, was because of how they got off the line. True. I mean, that's obvious, but that, that, was, that was a huge differentiator. And on tracks that are maybe more conducive to overtaking, that'll be less important. Because I, I think if the Aprilias run in front of him on Saturday and Sunday, they stay in front of him. But because of, you know, because the KTMs were always able to get themselves just out of the out of the pack every time because they got off the line so fantastically. I mean, that was, that was a huge part of their, huge part of their success. I, I think KTM have almost... I don't want to say accidentally built a bike that suits the rules perfectly at the minute because that's not really fair to anyone, but it turns out that the current bike has an amazing strength that very much plays to modern MotoGP in that it seems to be absolutely phenomenal at restarts. And, you know, in, in the world that we've been talking about where it's hard to pass and hard to overtake, having a bike that's really good at restarts is so important. Um, we watched yesterday at the Monday test uh, Marco Bezzecchi did 30 practice starts to try and improve it. That's how important the start of the race is at the minute. Um, and, and we asked everyone who was doing practice starts about it, and a lot of people were, were basically doing one every time they left pit lane. Um, and I think it was Alicia Spagaro that said, yeah, you know, of course everyone's doing loads of practice starts. Everyone needs to do loads of practice starts. Apart from the KTMs, they don't have to bother with it. <laughs> That's you know that's how much they've nailed that super super important element of the race at the minute through proper electronics balanced well um, a really really good clutch um, yeah they're, they're making up a lot a lot a lot of time there and that's really helping as well. There's also a suggestion from Miller that sort of the rider factor in it is downplayed and the way he put it is that the guys who are struggling are sort of repeat strugglers who just get in their head during during the races and i think he you know particularly sort of made a comment towards alicia spargo i think in pointing out that in his in his understanding spargo was too preoccupied trying to cover him off at the starts and actually getting a good launch i i mean it's probably i probably don't agree because it just like <laughs> you saw those aprilia starts from paul they were just routinely not good and not good in a very similar way basically no matter where Spargo's bike was pointed. And yeah, Miller and Binder, both really good starters, but I think it's, for me, it's fairly obvious that also the KTM does have something figured out there more in terms of company-wide. And we had loads of opportunity to witness them because I don't think we've ever had a MotoGP race weekend with four actual four-wheel race starts in it. So Yeah, yeah surely not. 
Uh, we, one extra bit of KTM goodness that we should mention that I don't think we have yet. There were three factory bikes, three competitive factory bikes, because Danny Pedrosa was here. And I was excited about Pedrosa coming back just because he's a good retro name. That Red Bull Ring cameo uh, well, it provided some quite amazing photographs of him standing you know, next to a kind of small fireball. But also he was competitive in the restarted race. I did not expect him to come in and be fastest on Friday morning and then to get a you know, top six and a top seven finish. This this is above my expectation for middle-aged wildcard returnees by, by a long way. Genuinely, uh, topping FP1, I did kind of expect it. And I'm going to... Oh, really? Uh, yeah. And I'm, I'm going to sort of give myself a bit of credit because I'm going to be taking a lot of a lot of beating this season for predicting Fabio Quartararo as the champion. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to feel it every weekend and I feel it crushingly every weekend already um but you know i did write coming into the weekend that you know pedrosa was gonna go a lot better than your average wild card and he was gonna probably get out of the blocks really well because he just tested extensively at hereth just now and because he loves hereth so i was not like i was not too surprised by the fp1 topping and my general expectation was podiums probably out of reach but something like a yeah, second half of top 10, maybe even fifth or something was possible. That's basically exactly how it was. Maybe a little bit even better than that, because I think if he was... Well, that's also part of the consideration. I think he was a little bit less race rusty. He probably could have got even more on the board. But he was just routinely very competitive throughout. Looked a, a decent match for the for the factory riders. Maybe if qualifying wasn't mixed weather, maybe if it was more normal conditions he'd have an even better great grid slot and even better weekends but even still very 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 good and honestly i'm not i'm not sure what it tells us about i don't want to say the modern state of MotoGP so much as just the danny pedrosa situation because this weekend has made it clear he could still be on the grid if he particularly wanted to still clearly good enough which the final honda season didn't make it look that way. And, you know, a, a lot of people will point out that it was not the ideal environment, but also his, honestly, his dr- drop-off in the final Honda season, it was, it was really steep, very, very steep. And maybe maybe that's just further evidence of Mark Marquez doing total magic. Maybe it's, and probably it is also evidence of Honda becoming much more towards Mark Marquez. But the fact that Danny can still do this well on a MotoGP weekend with, this little relevant race fitness it's it's telling and it's it's interesting probably also quite worrying if you're one of the other guys in the grid who've just been beaten by a guy that hasn't really raced in five years um yeah and we, we know that pedroza is you know he's, he's one of the original four aliens he is next level talent um but it was impressive um we know as well obviously that the circuit sits him and that he's tested there extensively. You know, the, the quote of the weekend, I think, was Jack Miller, who was asked uh, early in the weekend if he was impressed by Pedroza's pace there. And he said, no, of course I'm not. The guy's got an effing corner named after him here. Yeah. Um, it, Didn't say effing. <laughs> there was an element of that, that, that this is a Danny Pedroza-friendly circuit that he's tested at extensively recently. But the way that he came in and, and showed up a lot of people in races... Um, People are going to be talking about it for quite some time. And he, he could have done even better, exactly like you said, Val, if he wasn't as race rusty. Um, I think that closing stages of the sprint race, someone who is a little bit more routinely used to racing would have definitely put a move on Miguel Oliveira because kind of felt like he was just cruising behind him. Um, you know, he had a few looks, but they all sort of came from Oliveira mistakes rather than, than Pedroza really forcing the issue. Um yeah, testament to how good he is, and and also m- even for me, more than the performances of Miller and Bender shows that the KTM is pretty sorted at the minute, because you don't do that in a bad bike. Like you say, it was a very Pedrosa friendly set of circumstances to to make a comeback. You know, a track he's just done a ton of mileage at, a track he's been historically really good at. The thing it got me thinking though was. Did Pedrosa just need one year off and then a move to a different team? Because by the end of that Honda stint, it had that kind of properly mentally bruising stint alongside Mark Marquez for a few years. It had a very bruising physically career. The, the guy was broken a lot during his his time in MotoGP. 
you know, during the alien era, Pedrosa was the rider I was least enthusiastic about winning a race from that quartet because he was the least outspoken of them, the least likely to get. Well, he'd be on the receiving end of a spat. He'd be the, the rider taken off and sad about it, but he wouldn't be generating the fireworks or, or the website clicks. So I tended to see a Pedrosa win as oh, was a bit of a muted weekend. But it, it was lovely to see him back. Now, I'm, I'm not expecting to come back again. You know, he, he said very openly the point of him doing this race was to understand for testing how this bike performs in dirty air in a pack. So he knows to kind of factor that into his feedback. But yeah, it just it, it made the end of his career feel like a, a really big open question mark and made me think, oh, what if he had gone to Patronus Yamaha when that, that door was open? I think it could have been a really interesting final part of his MotoGP story. Yeah, but ultimately, yeah, it probably would have been quite good. Or he didn't get the opportunity to take a year off and then yeah. come back. That's that's tough. But yeah, he could have tried to reset himself at Petronas Yamaha. And I have no reason to think he wouldn't have gone quite well. That bike always you know, was touted as being quite, quite suited for him. Definitely. But at the same time, you know, maybe he does that. Yamaha doesn't win a title these past few years. Because, you know, remember whose seat that was and whose seat it ended up. So, yeah, obviously, Indeed. Danny Pedrosa comes in, Fabio Quartararo doesn't. One thing, just to pick up on your earlier point, Matt, that I'm, I'm going to throw in there as well, is that in my experience of working with Pedrosa in, in the earlier points of his career, whenever he was still a full-time rider at Honda, um, he he was never... He's always been a bit of a fan favourite, but he was never really one of my favourite guys to work with because he tended to be quite quiet, insular, didn't say much, um, quite a closed book. Uh, the few years away have really changed that as well because he's come back in really personable, really relaxed. Um, as we see with ex-riders, you know, Casey Stoner came back to MotoGP the same way, completely different character mentally. Um, and it's it's meant that this weekend he's been quite, uh, quite good content. Um, he's been quite good to listen to, quite good to engage with. Um, quite interesting and I haven't heard any of it but apparently his commentary work that he's been doing on Spanish TV this season as well has been like absolutely just excellent because he's really good at it as well as being really knowledgeable about it So KTM might be in a bit of a title fight. The, the list of riders and teams who are not in a title fight seems like it's getting longer. You know, we didn't expect Marco Bezzecchi to sustain his championship lead. You know, he really hasn't after a really miserable, bruising weekend when he just scored one, one point. Um, Mark Marquez didn't make it back. Ennio Bastanini tried to make it back and had to pull out. The list of people who thought they might be in title contention is is dwindling now this this final section of the podcast on his notes val suggested was called underachiever corner I'm not sure if you want that to be broadcast on no i absolutely do accurate, i absolutely do because it's, fair. <laughs> it's it's such an accurate title and yamaha aprilia and honda just this weekend was very telling for all three of them in different ways let's start with yamaha this is a track where quateraro famously dominated two races at the start of 2020 season he's got four pole positions here if he doesn't win it he nearly wins it is his general trend or uh, was it 2021 he had the arm pump problem yeah. when he was on, yeah, yeah. on course to win? Yeah, this is one of his his strongest tracks. He was absolutely nowhere on pace. The best part of his weekend was probably the recovery ride after the penalty and the other penalty to even get 10th in in the main race. But this was massively telling about, about Yamaha's potential and it, it's in a very negative way. Yeah, Quartararo's... Harith uh, qualifying record is now absolutely hilarious. It goes something like P1, 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 P2, P16. Yeah. P16 is this year. Uh, it was an abysmal weekend. Terrible. Uh, if if Quartararo can't get it done at Harith or come anywhere near getting it done at Harith, then you're, I mean, you're just nowhere. You're done. This this season is just basically one extensive big testing program. I don't know what you what you can do when you're scoring like this at a track where he's been this good, at a track where the Yamaha is traditionally this good. Best part of Quartararo's weekend was probably, honestly, the Monday test, because he went quicker in the Monday test, in the single lap sort of preparation that he did. I mean, the problem is they still don't have any pace on fresh tires. They don't, they're not really very good on, on a single lap, on low fuel, on new tires. They're not accelerating well. Fabio's just increasingly unhappy both riders are quite vocal about how the bike 
doesn't handle very sweetly anymore. Not a not a great place to be. Um, I mean, I think Fabio's insistence is that it's not really to do with a more powerful engine. He might be right. I mean, he sees the data, I don't. But it's it is something you'd sort of come have come to expect, I think, to when you bring a more powerful engine and how that corresponds to the bike handling and the bike characteristics that you have that you you need time to bet it in. But even with that, I mean, P16 qualifying at Jerez, I mean, was it P16, P15, something like that? Not good enough. Shocking, isn't it? I mean, Fabio Guardiola is not supposed to be doing that. Um, good ride on Sunday, but... <sighs> They're not going to win a race this season. Um, that's my gut feeling at this point. If if Fabio Cuadraro can't win a race at Jerez, if he can't even come close to winning a race at Jerez, then I can't see any other track this year where they can do anything much better in, in sort of semi-normal circumstances at least. Um, you know, maybe someone in P9 T-bones the eight guys in front at the first corner and he comes through. But that's the only circumstance we're talking about here where I like, genuinely just cannot see a, a track where they're going to dig themselves out of this hole this year. That's how bad this is. Um, the new engine is all fine and good, but it isn't. it doesn't fix anything because the, the problems are as we now see, much more fundamentally deeper than, than their top-line speed. Um, and, yeah, like you said, Val, this this year is an extended test session, or it should be, but I, I, they, they need, you know, more and more now it becomes completely obvious. This company needs a fundamental rethinking about how they build MotoGP bikes if they're going to be competitive in MotoGP. And I, I'm not saying that necessarily means they have to build a V4 as opposed to an inline four engine, but they need to start from scratch, basically. They need to build a bike that is designed for modern MotoGP rather than keep trying to change the bike that they've got to be vaguely competitive, because it's, it's just not. And looking at the championship position as well, Quattararo is now 47 points behind. Now, what Banyaya did last year means you could, you have to kind of look at championship positions with a little bit of a pinch of salt because turnarounds are no longer impossible. But t- that turnaround was achieved on the bike that looked like as soon as something clicked, it would just run away with most yeah. of the races. Like you say, this bike does not look like a bike that can win a race anytime soon. Honestly, it is. I, I find it very funny, and maybe you guys won't, but... I looked at the standings, I saw that 47 point gap and I was like, that's better than I expected. He's closer than I <laughs> yeah. thought he would be. Cause that's not representative of the performance gulf right now. The performance gulf True. is bigger than 47 points after these rounds, which is I think the most downing thing because it wasn't for Banyaya. Banyaya's 91 point deficit was an aberration relative to what yeah, speed completely. he could do on the bike. Whereas this is, this is even like, this flatters Fabio and Yamaha a little bit, which I think says all, all you need to know. Well, that's an interesting way of looking at it as well, because just behind the two Yamahas in the points is Aleixas Bogaro on 29 points. This is, let's do some quick maths, 58 points behind uh, Banyaya. Now, this feel, Aprilia at the moment feels like Suzuki in a way last year. We know the bike is, in theory, quick. We had really high expectations for it. The results just aren't happening. We should say Maverick Vinales is delivering the results, but he's still, you know, he's fifth in the championship. He's got a... Uh, what's that 39 39 point deficit to Banyaya that doesn't look like it's going to close anytime soon unless he can start finishing ahead of of Banyaya why why is Aprilia letting this season slip it seems like quite a lot of small things adding up um, but also is, is the bike as good as we thought it was are we did we over, overestimate what this this bike's capable of I mean you're saying it's, it's it's like Yamaha it's like Suzuki I think it's just it's Yamaha it's basically the old Yamaha I've, like, again, I've seen this movie before. I know I made this sort of semi-joke a couple of episodes ago, but I've look, it's it's a bike that goes well on Friday and it's a bike that goes really well in clean air, but because of how bad it is off the line and because Maverick Vinales isn't necessarily what you'd call a first lap specialist. Yeah, no. Uh, because of those things, you don't really get to take profit of that. It's still, like you only need to, to look at the, at the Friday pace and the pace and clean air and stuff to see that it's, it's a good bike. It's a really good bike. I mean, Alex Spargo said it's, you know, he believes it's a better bike than the RC16. That's what made him frustrated to finish behind because, you know, he feels it's better, but he dropped back at the start and then the front tire 
temperature and pressure, one or the other, or both basically went out of control. He didn't feel really comfortable. Uh, so that generally, you know, that feels familiar to me. You know, that's that's a bit Yamaha-esque. You have a, a great bike in clean air, but you don't, you can't execute it on Sunday for one reason or another. But even beyond that, just general matters of execution, like it's getting really frustrating to watch. Like I, Simon will attest to me growing increasingly exasperated over the weekend <laughs> yeah. because, you know, first with Aleish crashing on Saturday, and then with Vinales, who had a worse Sunday than I expected, but still was on course to at least get some points on the board. Just having a chain fly off. Like, Aprilia is no longer in a position where it can get away with that, but it's not even about getting away with it. It's like something goes wrong every weekend. I think, I don't know if they could have won maybe even the race if there was a normal qualifying that put Vinales towards the top along with Aleish and maybe put the KTMs a bit more down. But but I'm yeah, I'm also not convinced because of how bad the bike looked off the line in Espargo's hands. Vinales did get one really good start, I think, on Saturday, but it's just the starts are not consistent enough and they're conditioning everything they do and the, the just the execution isn't great. Uh they're not slow. They're just they're not scoring anywhere near the points they should be scoring and you can't when you're a Prillian, you, if you want to fight for the title somehow this year, you obviously can't be doing that. I mean, that much is clear. I mean, arguably, they, they start the, every weekend this year the fastest bike in the grid. Um, <laughs> almost consistently at this point. It's the only thing about them that is consistent. Um, the the Vinales thing is pretty obvious for me. The guy cannot start a race. Um, he's never been able to do it. And... That has continued into this year. He's working on it, obviously. He's doing practice starts every time he leaves pit lane, even in practice. But I don't know, maybe sprint races will be good for him because maybe doing double the amount of starts in a season is something that he needs to try and uh, to try and help him get up to speed with it. But we've been watching him try and get up to speed on it for what? eight seasons now and it still hasn't happened so who even knows um the the other side of the garage this side of the garage is more confusing because he, you know this is the guy who last year almost won a title just through consistency and now he's crashing like every time you look at him um and i don't know if that's because he's trying to override a bike that that maybe isn't as good as we thought it was or if it's frustration creeping in, or I don't know, it's really hard to get a read on, on what's causing that. Um, all the all the pieces are there to turn around this year, and realistically, like a title charge is probably still even on the cards because you can pull back gaps. You know, yeah. we've seen others pull back gaps like this, like Bagnaya and. Bagnaya's not having a smooth year; he's having a fast yeah. year, but it's not smooth. So it is all. You know, it's all there to turn it around, but I'm not entirely sure that anyone, including Aprilia, knows how to turn it around. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And but I mean, Vinales' big asset is that he doesn't crash, but that doesn't matter when the chain flies off, does it? I mean, that's you know the same thing happens. Uh, it's a shame. It's a shame what's what's happening right now. And honestly. It's all well and good talking up Aprilia and marveling at the engineering and marveling at the bike, but it's getting a little exhausting. Like I start to feel like a bit of an idiot because the results aren't coming and I feel stupid for going, no, 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 the bike's great. Honestly, I swear. It's great in the race simulation that I ran in my head on Friday. Then on Sunday, it's P7 and then the chain flies off. It's definitely a bit of a loss for the listeners. They couldn't see Val's facial expression as uh, <laughs> as he ended that point about Aprilia's wasted potential. Uh, two weeks ago in our Kota race episode, we were celebrating Honda finally winning a MotoGP race. As you can tell from the fact they're the last team we're talking about today, they did not win at Jerez by a long, long way. You know, we, we talked at the outset about the number of crashes this weekend. Okay, we were thinking mainly first lap pileups. Most other crashes seem to be Hondas flying off the road and, th- and through the gravel. And we ended up in this kind of slightly 2020 tribute weekend where Takanakagami was Honda's best hope and, uh, and a top 10 finisher. Um just to just to round us off, 
what did we make of Honda? Was this what we expected Honda to get back to when it was at a less kind of Honda-friendly circuit, or was it worse? I, I, I would vote worse. worse. I, I can't believe Simon. I can't believe Simon rated Nakagami P13 for that weekend in his rankings. <laughs> uh, how dare you? Relative. This is the this was ic- ic- exceptional compared to what everybody else did. Considering it's about that, eight places higher than Nakagami normally ends up, isn't it? And I, of course, he's a Harith specialist, okay. But also, clearly, just the bike wasn't up to scratch here. And Rins and Mir combined for six crashes during the weekend, and then I think two more during the test. I mean, at least I think I think Taka deserves some. I, I joke, but I, I do think Taka deserves some credit for the for the effort he put in uh, compared to Rins and Mir, who, I mean, especially Juan Mir. I, I, look, I had to drive that sort of my Pedrosa prediction. I had to bring it up because I'm about to take also a beating on Jean Mir, who I was very high on coming out of Portimao and who has not followed up on that at all. Like Not even a little bit. He's just crashing all the time, crashing in every race, not finishing races, not particularly fast, not particularly comfortable. Whatever pace he has doesn't matter because he's not there over a single lap. It's just a bit generally upsetting. And it's like, it's all well and good for me to go here and say, no, 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 no. He's definitely better than Jorge Lorenzo and Alex Marquez and Paul Espargaro in that ride. Definitely an upgrade. All well and good for me to say that. Look at the standings. You don't see it. You see arguably a downgrade. So, ugh. And just the general Honda weekend. Ugh. Mir sounds like someone who's just mentally broken. Um, for whatever reason that Honda garage, that other side of the Honda garage does things to a rider that just leaves them I don't know, completely adrift um, he had more crashes at Hareth this weekend than he did in the season he won the title for Suzuki like what? how does that even happen um, you know, this is another rider who's always been super consistent, who's always been steady and it's just yeah, I don't know um, it sounds like things inside the garage aren't particularly easy. Um, it sounds like there's a. It sounds like they're making the old Honda mistakes in a lot of regards. Where oh, we'll just wait and Mark Marquez to come back and everything will be okay, and nothing really has to change too much until he arrives back. Um, and that tends to be quite soul destroying if you're a Marquez teammate. Just ask Danny Pedrosa, Jorge Lorenzo, Paul Spagaro. You know, it's not a easy situation to find yourself in, and and. Mir is just the latest one paying the price for it. Um, we we knew it was going to be a tough weekend for Honda, um, but you know, I, I'm I'm lost for words. It's that bad, actually. That's the level we're at now. It, it shouldn't ever be this bad for Honda. I'll, yeah, I'll say this for I agree. It shouldn't be this bad for Honda because also of the quality of the talent in that rider lineup. Like it's increasingly unacceptable now that you've taken in full one of the best rider lineups in MotoGP and you know appropriated it fully. And this is the kind of weekend you can still have when Mark Marquez is absent. I mean that's shocking. Um, in terms of Mir, at least he was given the Calyx to try. Because his former teammate did not get the Calyx to try and was shocked to find out that John Muir ran it out, which is a <laughs> if that's the way it yeah, if that's the way it came across, that's a I don't understand how you do something like that organizationally. That's not good. Yeah, that that that's you know, that to me highlights the Honda internal we will do what we want and the writers will be happy with it whether or not it you know hurts them or pisses them off or whatever um so yeah the the new calyx chassis finally arrived on monday uh stefan bradle spent most of the day riding on it and a little bit of the day crashing on it uh at the end of the day juan Mir got a chance to go out and ride it he did one lap and it broke down in the start of his second lap which wasn't ideal and then we discovered afterwards that Ale- race winner, Honda's only race winner of the season, Alex Rins, had been told that the only rider who'd ride it would be Stefan Bradl, and he discovered that Mir had rode it when he overheard Mir speaking to a TV interview in the, the broadcaster's area after the test ended. Like, if you're in trouble and one of your riders is, only one of your riders is performing a little, 
surely you'd like at least try and keep him happy instead of just doing everything you can to piss him off it seems like it, it, it raises so many questions about everything that goes on inside Honda um, and you know I, I mentioned earlier that Mir has been really demoralised and really low and you wonder what the atmosphere is like if this is the sort of things that is kind of routinely how Honda operate. And I know that Mir come out best versus Rins this time around, but, you know, that is the way that they operate. And it's so completely alien from how Suzuki operated that that it has to be a huge culture shock for Mir in particular because Rins isn't in that environment 100%. He's in a satellite team that's a little bit more family-friendly and blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, it's... You know, in the context of all of that, it's it's maybe no surprise at all that things are the way they are. They did give Alex Rins the, the chassis to try that he's been wanting to try. So, you know, there's that. But look, we, we know, you know, the stories of even before Ducati's sort of current run of dominant, uh, dominance that, you know, Gigi Delinia would take the time out to go through basically all the Ducati garages and listen to all the riders also because, you know, with Pekko Bagnaia, the case was, oh, that guy might be on our factory bike in the future and probably will be. It makes sense for Honda to butter up Alex Rins because Alex Rins might be your factory rider in the future. When, you know, maybe when Marc Marquez leaves because of, <laughs> because of the state of the program or something, or Jean Mir leaves because he's been broken. Oh, it's such a, such a weird open goal if it is as it seems. And it's, it, it is definitely, uh, definitely... A mistake from somebody because like whatever happened there rinse shouldn't have been upset the way he was um and the good news is i guess the calyx had a, a pretty good debut by the sound of it apart from the, the mechanical issues i mean both mir and alberto Prige said stefan really liked it and yeah you know, if stefan really liked it history suggests mark marquez will you know quite fancy it so that's interesting but coated in so much weird inner drama for no reason yeah a very marquez era honda way well actually before marquez era i'm thinking back to some of the tensions around the uh, pedrosa nikki hayden season in particular as well very honda way of, of all this unfolding honda should be in a different position in two weeks time at the french grand prix uh well might not be more competitive, but there'll be a bit more fireworks around it because Mark Marquez should be back for this one. Um, we will see you again there to talk about everything that happened at Le Mans. Next week is a Toby Moody interview episode. Um, enjoy the next fortnight. If you follow F1 as well, enjoy the Miami Grand Prix. Fingers crossed someone different might win that one, but I'm not particularly optimistic. Uh, thank you for your time this morning and we'll speak to you soon. The Athletic.